Well, good morning, everyone. Good to see you here. We are in week nine of our series through Matthew. We'll be in Matthew all the way through Easter Sunday. And today, our week and our chapter match up. I don't know if that's ever going to happen again, so it's kind of a special thing. We are in week nine, chapter nine. And we're going to look at a passage of scripture that might be familiar to you, Matthew 9, verses 35 through 38. So let me read this for us this morning, and we'll go from here. Verse 35 says that Jesus went through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Something I want us to notice that would be easy to miss. The first verse, Matthew chapter 9, verse 35, has an identical, almost identical verse earlier in Matthew. In fact, I put them on the screen side by side so you can see this. Matthew 4.23 and Matthew 9.35 are not quite identical, but they're very similar. This idea that Jesus went everywhere, teaching in the synagogues, proclaiming the kingdom, healing every disease and every affliction among the people. What Matthew's doing here is interesting. Matthew is providing for us some bookends. He's framing Matthew's writings between chapter 5 and chapter 9. And between chapter 5 and chapter 9, what we see is the beginning of Jesus' ministry. He begins to go out into public, and he begins to teach, and he begins to heal, and signs and wonders, and all sorts of insights into the gospel uh, that he's come to preach. But when we get to chapter 9, Matthew repeats this verse again. And the reason why biblical scholars and commentators say is that Matthew is trying to give us a heads up that Matthew 5 through 9 framed something, but this is a, something's about to shift. Something is about to change. Until this point in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus' power and authority was being revealed in word and deed that he himself did. But now it's about to shift because Jesus is about to choose people to go and do the same things that he was doing. Jesus is about to entrust his disciples with the work of teaching, proclaiming the gospel, and even healing people who are sick and afflicted. And Jesus didn't just want this work to be given to the disciples that were there at that time, but he wants to give that work to you and I as well. Jesus didn't just come to do the work of ministry, but to equip us and entrust us with the work of ministry. And that's what's shifting here in Matthew. From this point forward, Jesus begins to hand off ministry to those who are following him. And what he does in this passage is before he gives the work to his disciples, he wants them to know the motivation behind the work. He wants them to know the why. Any of you are people who like to always know the why? You don't just accept anything at face value. You're just like, your boss asks you to do something and your first instinct is to say, why? Why am I doing this? And if you have little kids in your home that they want to know why for everything, why is this universal question? But why matters most? So it's important for us to know how and why do we do the ministry? And in this morning's text, Jesus reveals that the motive behind the work that he's called us to do is this word, compassion. Compassion. So this morning, we're going to learn three things about compassion. We're going to learn about the nature of compassion, what it is, the object of compassion, who does it go towards, and then lastly, the result of compassion. What is the result of having compassion for people? Let's talk first about the nature of compassion. 
a Friday night while you were all smartly tucked away probably and looking out at the uh, blowing snow and the freezing temperatures, I had the great joy of driving my 11-year-old to a school event that somehow was not canceled. <laughs> and it was one she wanted to be at. So uh, thankfully, we live less than a mile from our school. So I drove right across Sewell Road and drove by a three-car accident, <laughs> a great sign, and then uh, pulled into the parking lot. And as I went to drop her off, we realized we'd gotten there a little bit early. So I said, well, let's just get out of the way of everybody. Let's loop back and go park, and we'll just wait. And as I went to loop back and park, because of the snow and the drifting and you couldn't see anything, I went over a curb. I just kind of hit the curb with the front of my left, of my left tire, kind of went over it and, and didn't think much of it. I just, you know, I've gone over a curb before. I mean, you've gone over curbs. I'm not, we're not perfect drivers. But then all of a sudden, I saw my dashboard, the tire pressure gauge, on my front left tire just began to plummet. And I think the combination of how cold it was plus maybe the way I hit that curb ripped a huge hole in a tire in, a, in a, really a very new car. And I'm sitting there now in this parking lot thinking, I have AAA, but in my mind I go, there's accidents everywhere right now. Like, I'm going to be here forever. And sure enough, it was like I put my info into my app, and it was like a 90-minute wait, and I'm sitting there. And God bless Al Rhodes, who's one of our head ushers in the church. He, he works for AAA, and he came over, and he drove over, and he helped me. Now, I've always had compassion for people who do this sort of work on these sort of nights. You know, when you see them underneath cars on the side of the highway when it's snowing and freezing, I think it's some of the most terrifying, dangerous work that people are doing. So I, have, I already had compassion for Al and for his work. But when he came over and I stood next to him in this freezing cold, and I'm telling you, I've never been this cold in my life. I didn't plan to get out of my car, so I didn't bring gloves. I didn't bring a hat. I didn't have a scarf. I was wearing a T-shirt under a thin jacket. I'm like a Syracuse amateur. <laughs> um, and I'm standing there next to him trying to hold the flashlight, but my fingers won't move for me. And, and, and my hand is shaking, and he's down, and, and I'm physically feeling pain. I went home and ran my hands under cold water for like five minutes just to get the pain to go away, and my forehead was hurting me. It was a nightmare. God bless Al. He got the donut on, and I got to go home. You know, I had some level of compassion already for people who are doing that, but when I stood there in the cold and experienced what they were experiencing, I had physical compassion for them. I had physical pain. I felt what they were feeling. And this Greek word to have compassion literally means this, to feel something in the viscera. Are you familiar with that word? Viscera. We use the word visceral, right? Viscera simply is the internal organs in the main cavities of the body, the abdomen, the intestines. And so when it says that Jesus looked at the crowd and he had compassion for them, Jesus did not just, he was not just emotionally moved. He was physically affected. He felt it in his guts. He felt it inside of him. He was physically pained. He literally felt agony when he looked at these people who were like sheep without a shepherd. To have compassion is a vivid verb. It's not passive, it's active, it's vivid, it's gut reaction. His heart went out to these people. Hebrews chapter 1-3, we learn that Jesus Christ came to earth to be the exact representation of the Father. So if you're ever wondering what God the Father is like, all you have to do is look at Jesus. And so what this means is that in this moment in Matthew chapter 9, if you ever wonder how God the Father feels about this world and the brokenness in this world, and the sin in this world, and the decay in this world, and the brokenness, sin, and decay in my life and in your life. If you ever wonder how God the Father feels about it, go to Matthew 9 and look at how Jesus feels. 
He's physically moved. Tyler Staten, uh, our staff is reading a book right now by Pastor Tyler Staten called Praying Like Monks, Living Like Fools. And in it, he says this, God has an instinctive gut-level response to our sin. He has an instinctive gut-level response to the havoc sin wreaks in our lives and in this world. And then this phrase really jumped out at me when I was reading this chapter. He is not cool and calculated. That made me stop because I think I always have pictured God that way. Somewhat cool and calculated and in control and removed and distant. But the scriptures show that God has a deeper personal emotional response to our condition. He cannot just sit back and kind of watch sin wreak havoc in our lives and in the lives around us and in the world around us and just kind of say, well, I did my part. I sent my son. Let's see how it goes. He still in a visceral way has compassion on sinners. Sin is not just breaking God's rules, it's breaking God's heart. And when we sin, God has this deep response. What's amazing that even in his pain, and even in the visceral experience of compassion, he does not run from us, he runs towards us. He does not turn his back on us, he does not come to us with condemnation, he comes to us with compassion. You know, Tyler Staten in this book goes on to say, our assumption is that Jesus is closest to us when we are doing well. I've heard Christians say this. I've said this in my life. You know, you maybe have been asked this question. What's the closest you've ever felt to God? What's the closest you and Jesus have ever been? You're going to think of a time where you were doing really well, aren't you? When you were doing your devos and you were going to church and you were giving and you were laying behind bad habits and attitudes and emotions that were controlling you. And you're like, yeah, that's when I felt closest to Jesus. But the author of Hebrews says that Jesus is nearest to us in our weakness. Here's what it means. We feel closest to Jesus when we're strong, but Jesus is closest to us when we're weak. Jesus is drawn to our sin and our brokenness, not intellectually like a mathematician who has worked this equation in a thousand different ways and knows that grace is the only solution that satisfies the variable, but he's near to us in an instinctual way from his gut, his primal instinct. Jesus wants to run to us in our weaknesses to meet us there because Jesus has compassion and the nature of compassion is it's felt deeply in our viscera. When you envision the expression of God's face when you sin, when you struggle, when you mess up, when you don't get it right, when you doubt, when you're inconsistent, when you find yourself in that moment and then you envision what God's face towards you looks like, what do you see? So many people see disgust or disappointment. God is disgusted, he's disappointed, he's frustrated, he's on the verge, he's, a, he's an exhausted parent who's had just enough, right? He's about to throw in the towel and give up on you. And yet from scriptures, we see that God looks at us, even in our brokenness, our sin, and our shame, and he has such compassion. He's moved, he feels, he sympathizes. Now, how is this possible? It's possible because Jesus became one of us. He knows the human experience. Jesus came and he wrapped himself in flesh. And in fact, in, in Hebrews chapter 4, it says that, that he is our great high priest who is able to sympathize with all of our weaknesses. You've not faced a temptation that Jesus can't sympathize with you in. You don't have a weakness that Jesus wasn't tempted to also have a weakness in. Now, the verse goes on to say that he never sinned. 
but he knows what it's like to be one of us, so it makes him sympathetic towards us in ways that he can have compassion. My oldest daughter, Lilia, plays lacrosse, and recently one of her teammates suffered a common but devastating injury. She tore her ACL in her knee, and a tear of an ACL, if you want to be an athlete, requires surgery and rehab and therapy, and it's 9 to 12 months before you're back to where you were, and it's a mental battle as well. And her friend's dad is a good friend of mine, so I was talking to him. He was saying, we got to find a surgeon. we got to find this. And then he said, we have to find a physical therapist. And I said, oh, I think I know one. There's a young couple in our church. They go to the first service, Megan and Sean. They own a gym over in the middle of the Hopkins Road Soccer Center. And uh, Sean is a personal trainer. And uh, Megan is a physical therapist. She also works at a local hospital. But she works out of her own space, too. And I immediately thought of Megan for two reasons. One, because I know she's great. They work with our daughters for physical training and and physical strength. But I also know that she's an athlete. Megan was a soccer player. She went to college, won, I think, two national championships as a soccer player at the collegiate level. But before her senior year of high school, right before the season started, she tore her ACL and missed her entire senior year of high school soccer. And if you don't know this about lacrosse, lacrosse is about to begin. This girl just tore her ACL right before her season is about to begin. And so I said to my friend, not only do I think she's great at what she does because she's got all the degrees and the diplomas and all the certifications, but she knows where your daughter's at. She knows what it means to be an athlete and watch your season be taken away from you like that. She knows the fear of thinking, will I ever be able to compete again? Will I ever be as fast and strong and confident as I once was? And she knows what it's like to know the answer to the questions are yes and to go into play at the next level and to succeed. So she's not just a good doctor, she's a great high priest. She can sympathize with this girl. And that's what we have in Jesus. That's why he can be so compassionate towards us because empathy emerges from shared experience. One of my friends who's a pastor about an hour east from here a couple years ago lost his brother in an act of violence. And he reached out to me because he knew that I had lost my brother in a different way, but that we had both lost brothers. And he immediately said, I've had a lot of people talk to me. A lot of people give me advice. A lot of people counsel me, but I needed to talk to you. Why? Because I could empathize. I have walked through in some ways what he was walking through. Jesus has been where you are, and so he can have compassion on you. The second thing in this passage is the object of compassion. Jesus, who is his compassion directed towards? It's directed towards the crowd. What do we know about the crowd? We know two things from this passage. We know that they were helpless and they were harassed. Helpless is a Greek word that means just to be lying there. You're just lying helpless. You can't even get off the ground. You can't do anything for yourself. And harassed literally means to be torn apart or to be flayed. Speaks of great violence being done to you where you're lying there helpless, exposed, torn, and flayed. This crowd, helpless and harassed. Harassed because there were problems around them. They were harassed maybe physically. Some in that crowd were sick, poor, and hungry. But they also were being harassed spiritually because the spiritual leaders of this time, the Jewish religious leaders, not only were they not properly feeding and protecting the flock, but these so-called spiritual shepherds were actually harassing and oppressing the flock. They were actually acting like wolves. They were shepherds in wolves clothing and Jesus saw that this crowd was harassed 
but also that they were helpless, that there was a problem inside of them. They couldn't help themselves. They, they couldn't lift themselves out of the situation they found themselves in. They couldn't lift that pharisaical yoke off of themselves. They couldn't break free from the unbiblical burdens that were being placed on them. The same burdens that Jesus attacked in the Sermon on the Mount would attack throughout his ministry. And the same burdens that Jesus promised to rid them of in the next chapter, which we're going to learn about next week, where Jesus said, if you're weary and tired and worn out on religion, come to me and find rest. From this scene, we see Jesus compassionate on those who are harassed and helpless. But there's two things that we learn, two more things that we learn about the nature of compassion. And the first thing is this, that compassion is tireless. Think about this crowd. Verse 35 says that Jesus has been doing ministry nonstop, teaching preaching, healing, casting out demons. I mean, he's been giving every bit of energy and strength he has to these people going throughout all the cities and villages, and he turns and he looks at the crowd, and if he was like me, he would say something like this, you got enough of me. <laughs> I've given you enough. Like, you've taken a lot from me. Can I, can I just take a break? Can I have a day off? But instead, he looks at the same crowd who has already taken so much from him, and he has compassion for them. It's amazing. And the reason why I think he could do this is because when he looked at the crowd, he didn't just see their needs. He saw their worth. He saw their value. He wasn't focused on their needs and their shortcomings and the work that they meant for him. He wasn't caught up on the fact that they weren't all going to understand what he had to give them and some were going to reject him. He just saw their worth to the Father. So he had compassion. And I want just to pause and remind you of something. This is how God feels towards you. Some of you got to hear this morning, God's not tired of you. He's not exhausted with you. He's not fed up with you. He doesn't look at you and go, oh, here we go again. He's not a parent on their last ounce of energy trying to muster up a little bit of patience and kindness for a child. He's infinitely patient. He's eternally kind. He's not tired of you. You do not exhaust him, and you cannot exhaust his love. His compassion is tireless. Psalm 77, the psalmist talks about this, and he does it in a really interesting way. He puts out four rhetorical questions, and the answer to each of the questions is a resounding no. I want to read these four questions, but after I read them, I want to hear you say no back to me. All right, let's see if we can sync this up. I didn't even try it with the first service. I knew they wouldn't get it. I know they, I know they couldn't get it, but I believe in the 11 a.m. All right, here we go. Psalm 77, verses 8 and 9. I'll point to you to get you going. Has God's steadfast love forever ceased? No. Are his promises at an end for all time? No. I love this one. Has God forgotten how to be gracious? No. Has he in his anger shut up his compassion? No. His compassion is tireless. The second thing that we see about compassion when we look at the object is this. His compassion is, we would say it's reckless. Let me explain. There are over 200 cities and villages in Galilee at this point, probably a population of about 3 million people. And what really stopped me in my tracks this week as I studied this passage was this simple phrase, that he had compassion. He looked at the crowd. He looked at the crowd. This is not Jesus having compassion on an individual. There's many stories like that in the Gospels where he sees the woman who's caught in adultery and he has compassion on her. He, he sees blind men and he has compassion on them. This is not individuals. This is a crowd. And here's the problem with having compassion on a crowd. 
You already know it, I think. You don't know who's in it. You don't know who's out there. You don't know what they all believe. You don't know what they all stand for. You don't have time to filter their stories to determine who made their own mess and who got their mess made for them. Who's helpless and who's harassed? Who's both? Who's neither? When you have compassion on a crowd like Jesus did, you're saying, I'm not going to determine whether I'm going to have compassion on you based on my ability to judge and decide whether or not you deserve my compassion. I'm not going to wait for you to earn and for you tell me your story, and if your story's sad enough, then I'll have compassion on you. Jesus had compassion on the crowd, and everything in me screams out, Jesus, you don't know who's in that crowd. What are you doing? It's reckless. Someone in that crowd hates you. Someone in that crowd is going to be screaming, crucify him in a couple years. Someone in that crowd has done terrible things to other people. And yet true compassion has a reckless nature to it because it's not uh, deciding who will I have compassion on, but looking at the crowd, looking at the world, looking at your neighbors, looking at your coworkers. Instead of dividing our community based on uh, different beliefs or different political views or different socioeconomic standings or people who have my personality or don't have my personality, instead of saying, I have compassion on the crowd. We'd like to choose who we have compassion on. We'd love to wait till we hear their story. We'd like them to earn it. And yet, compassion, real compassion, is reckless. It's for the crowd. And maturing Christians, the more you grow in Christ, the greater compassion you have for people, I believe. And the reason why that's possible, because sometimes some of you have been around Christians, and the opposite is true. The more mature they seem to become in Christ, the longer they're around the church, the less patient they are towards sinners the less kind they are towards people who believe differently, the more sort of nasty and snarky they get towards even other believers. But if you're really growing in Christ, you're also growing in this awareness of your need for Christ. When we sing a song like we sang earlier, oh God, my God, I need you, instead of thinking, I bet there's people in here whose lives are a mess who really need him, all you can think is how much you need him. Instead of thinking of the people that aren't here who need him, you can't get over the fact of how much you need God how much you need Jesus, because Christians who are growing in their faith are less and less impressed with themselves and more and more impressed with Jesus. I've pointed this out several times, so this may be familiar to you, but if you look at how Paul describes himself throughout his letters chronologically, the first time he defines himself or describes himself, he calls himself the least of the apostles, as one born out of time. Then later in time, he describes himself as the least of the saints, but the latest description chronologically we believe that we have of Paul by himself, he says, I am the chief of sinners. Now listen, Paul was not actually becoming more sinful over that time. Paul was growing and maturing in Christ. What was actually happening? How did Paul go from saying, I'm the least of the apostles, to I'm the least of the saints, to I'm the chief of sinners? Paul was not growing more sinful. He was growing more aware of his sinfulness and more sensitive to the way that the Holy Spirit was pointing at things in the corners of his heart where he still wasn't trusting Jesus. A few years ago, my wife Erin was walking down our stairs carrying a laundry basket, and she missed a step, and she fell down a long flight of stairs. I was in the other room holding our young daughter, Maddie, who was probably like maybe four years old at three years old at the time, and it's like one of those sickening sounds when you hear it and you know something terrible happened. So I, I scoop up Maddie and I go running in, terrified of what I'm going to see, and she hurt herself pretty badly. Maddie, by the way, laughed the whole time. God bless, <laughs> God bless Maddie. <laughs> she thought the whole thing was a big gag. Um, but once Erin once got up and we got her to the couch, her, her most acute pain was her ankle. 
It was really messed up. And, and for days afterward, her ankle hurt her and it throbbed and we were icing it and doing ibuprofen and whatever we knew to do um, without going in and being seen. And, and, but eventually that pain faded away and all of a sudden she found another pain. She was like, wow, I got this pain in my hip. Where did that come from? Well, it came from the exact same place the pain in her ankle came from, but she couldn't feel this pain until that pain healed. And then this pain began to heal, and all of a sudden she was like, oh, my goodness, my neck is sore. And then still two weeks later, she's discovering new sorenesses all from the same fall. I think in our growth with Christ, he comes to us, and he finds us falling down a flight of stairs, and we're hurting. And there's some very acute ways in which we're hurting, ways that we're aware of and we know because it's so obvious. It's destroyed our lives. And he begins to heal us in that area. But then as we begin to heal in that area, all of a sudden we begin to realize, ah, I got an issue over here too. Well, it's always been there. You just couldn't feel it until you began to heal here. And then you begin to heal here and you realize I got an issue here. You know what I'm describing? The rest of your Christian life until you go to be with Jesus. As he begins to heal parts of your heart and parts of your life, and as you grow in sanctification and you begin to get it right in one area, all of a sudden the Holy Spirit says, this has also always been an issue, but I've just been waiting for you to get healthy here so I can point out this. And if you really believe that, you know what it'll do? It will make you so compassionate towards people. It will give you such compassion for people who are also healing, but maybe they're healing a little bit behind your schedule, but that's okay because it's the Spirit's work. That's the object of compassion, the crowd. And then lastly, as we finish, the result of compassion. This Greek word compassion means it leads to action. It's not just I feel something, but it's I'm going to do something. So what does Jesus tell his disciples to do? He says, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. This famous verse that gets read at mission services and mission conventions, right? This is such a popular evangelism verse, and it's powerful. But I just want to point out that the result of compassion is that we pray to the Lord that his will would be done and that people would be sent out into the harvest. And I find it so telling that Jesus says the harvest is plentiful, the laborers are few. Here's what Jesus is saying. The problem is not the harvest. Listen, there's no shortage of people in the town of Clay that you work with, students that you go to school with. There's no shortage of people in your neighborhood that need Jesus and in some way, on some level, know they need Jesus. They might not use that word, but they're not satisfied, they're not happy, they're struggling, they're unsure, they're insecure, they're anxious. The harvest is not the problem. As the church, we don't sit inside the walls of our church and shake our fist at the world and go, you guys, you're the problem. If you, Jesus says, no, no, no. The harvest is not the problem. The harvest is plentiful. The laborers are the problem. The laborers are few. There are few who are willing to be moved with compassion and to go do the work in the harvest. And so pray that the Lord would send people into the harvest. So our work is prayer. But not just prayer, it's to pray and to prepare, or to pray and to partner. The Lord has been speaking to me for Trinity this year, these two words, pray and prepare, pray and prepare. These two things that we both we need to be doing as a church as we move forward. But when, when if you keep reading after Matthew chapter 9, guess what happens in Matthew chapter 10? Jesus calls the 12 to himself, and he sends them out. So it's never just prayer, it's praying and preparing, it's praying and partnering. We don't just say, God, would you do something? We say, God, would you do something and would you use me to be part of that? 
You pray and you look for opportunities to be the answer to your own prayer. You pray and you say, God, use me, send me. I'm praying to you, but also I want to partner with you in what you're doing. So we don't just say, God, send someone in the harvest. We say, God, send me into the harvest. That's our response. That's the result of compassion. We go. As the band comes, the last thing we see here is the result of compassion is not just our work, but it's God's work. It's Jesus' work. He said, pray to the Lord of the harvest, and he called the harvest his harvest. It's Jesus' harvest. These are the people that Jesus shed his blood for. And in Ezekiel, Old Testament prophet is talking to the people of Israel in a time where the spiritual shepherds of Israel are harassing them and leaving them helpless. It's a lot like Matthew chapter 9. These, these spiritual shepherds are taking advantage of the sheep, and they are using their power against them. And God says something powerful. I want to read it to you as we close. Ezekiel 34, verses 11 through 16. God writes himself right into the story. And this is a promise of what Jesus is coming to do. Verse 11, Ezekiel 34, it says this. For thus says the Lord God, behold, I, I, myself. Three times he uses that sort of pronoun. I, I, myself. He's emphasizing I'm going to do something about this. I will search for my sheep and I will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among the sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep, and I will rescue them from all the places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. He's speaking of what Jesus was going to come to seek and save those who were lost in the dark world. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and bring them into their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the ravines and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with the good pasture, speaking of nourishment and strength. On the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they shall lie down in good grazing land. On the rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, speaking of rest. In verse 16, as I read verse 16, I want you to hear these words as God's promise to you, but also his promises to the people that God's going to lead you to. Listen to what he promises. I will seek the lost. I will bring back the strayed. I will bind up the injured. I will strengthen the weak. God's saying, I'm not just going to sit back and watch this thing happen. I'm going to do this. The fat and the strong I will destroy. What he's saying here is those who are prideful and don't sense or see their need for God, it's destruction to them. I will feed them in justice. And then hundreds of years later, Jesus walks onto the scene and in John 10, 11, he stands in front of a crowd and he says, I am the good shepherd. Everything you've been waiting for in Ezekiel 34, Jesus says, I'm he, I'm here. I came to seek, to bind up, to heal, to restore, to bring back, to strengthen. I am the good shepherd, John 10, 11, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. In this story, Matthew chapter 9, Jesus has compassion on the crowd. He sees them. They're a sheep without a shepherd. He has emotional and physical experience when he sees their lostness. But a few years later, Jesus will be surrounded by a crowd again. This time, they will be looking at him hanging on a cross, some with compassion, but most of them with contempt. He will be suffering unthinkable emotional and physical pain because Jesus Christ's compassion didn't just lead him to the crowd. It led him to the cross. At the cross, he took the pain of our sin and shame upon himself. He experienced the separation from the Father that we deserved so that we might be his people sent out into his harvest. 
to do his work. Jesus' compassion led him to the crowd and it led him to the cross. And my question to you this morning is, where is your compassion leading you? Is it leading you to the crowd or is it just leading you to select people who you think deserve your compassion? Is it leading you to the cross where you'll come and die so that others may live? This is the compassion we find in Jesus. This is the compassion we need in ourselves. Let's pray together this morning.